1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Peggy O'Donnell-Heffington about her new book, Without Children. The Long History of Not Being a Mother. This book was released with Seal Press just a couple of months ago in April 2023. And as soon as I heard about it, I knew I had to read it. The book is a really fascinating and wide-ranging history of American women's reproductive choices. uh, Well, that's one way to put it anyway. With a primary focus on women who do not have children. Its author... Dr. Peggy O'Donnell Heffington is an historian who teaches at the University of Chicago. Among other places, she's been published in Jezebel, the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and more recently, Time Magazine, the New York Times, and Washington Post. So you can find her writing in lots of places. If you enjoy this interview, check out those recent articles, and of course, pick up the book. That's enough from me for now, so without further ado, Welcome to the podcast, Peggy. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. So I'd like to start with asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So both, you know, your academic trajectory, maybe your personal connection to the topic, and also how you came to write the book. Why did you feel this book was needed? Or, you know, what were you hoping to intervene in? Sure, thank you. Um,
0: So I am, as you said, I'm a instructional professor at the University of Chicago where I teach a lot of our research and writing methods courses for, for history majors. So, so I talk a lot about, about methods and about writing. It's something that I'm really passionate about. It's what got me into to history in the first place. Um, but backing up a little bit, i um, I I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley on a topic that has absolutely nothing to do with with the history of American motherhood or non-motherhood. I was trained as a European historian. I came to graduate school um, interested in in Holocaust history and and then expanded out from there into the history of human rights. I ended up writing a dissertation on a global history of mass grave exhumations, um, so, so basically scientists going in after an act of atrocity and exhuming the grave, which, again, has nothing to do with, with this book at hand. Um, I ended up believing very deeply, and I still do, that that is a very important topic, but it was not the right topic for me to be writing. By the time I got to the end of my of my dissertation, I felt like I had really... Covered that topic, and that and that it wasn't where I wanted to to continue my work. Um, at the same time, I I left Berkeley uh, right after graduating, and I moved to um, the Hudson Valley in New York to take a job to take a postdoc teaching in the history department at at West Point at the United States Military Academy, which was um, it, it was a fascinating experience in a lot of ways going from from Berkeley to a military academy. One of the things that really struck me was that all of my peers, um, many of whom were u s Army officers, they were there with their families. a lot of them were my age, a lot of them had had similar degrees, and all of the women had multiple children. And I had come from from Berkeley where you know, people really didn't have children, people my peers. And so that got me thinking about the conditions. And uh, the conditions under which people have children, people don't have children, and the history of those reproductive outcomes. So that was really what got me going on this book. Um, I think also, you know, as in terms of personal connection, I, I am someone who does not have children, um, and I – have never felt like I fit neatly into, you know, either like the infertility camp or the sort of joyfully not having children camp. For me it's 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 always been a more complicated thing. And I I suspected that I wasn't alone in that in the present and that and that it was a more complicated story in the past as well. So that that also got me interested in sort of looking at the history of not having children in all of its complexity.
1: Right. Okay. And I think that leads us on really well into my second question, which is a definitional one. I mean, you've just hinted at this, but you called the book without children. So it's not explicitly about childless women or child-free women, but women without children. So could you take us through the different implications of these various terms, um, some of which are quite Polarized, um, or you know, alienating. I think for some people, as you get out here. Tell us why you settled on this title. I mean, were there others you considered? Sure, it's it's a great question. I think when you certainly when you talk to a lot of
0: people today who don't have children, the preferred term is child-free, um, which tends to capture this idea of choice, of of agency, of opting for that kind of life. Um, even in some ways, a, a positive reframing of that kind of life. It's it's a um, reclaiming of of a way of being that that was denigrated for you know for for decades for centuries, um, and and so there's there's sort of a yeah it is it is the preferred term for a lot of people today. However, I didn't use that term for two reasons. One, because I'm a historian, and that term emerged in the 1970s, and so to use it before that to apply it to people for whom that terminology wasn't available seemed anachronistic, confusing. Um, much more importantly, though, is that ambiguity that I was gesturing towards in, in my last answer, that a lot of the history that I'm telling doesn't necessarily fit into a framework of agency, of choice, of you know, freely opting in to a life without children. Um, and, and to use that term, I think, elided a lot of that complexity. Like, would, would someone who experienced infertility want to to label themselves child-free? Would someone who felt like they couldn't afford to have children or felt like their choices were constrained in various other ways, did child-free really fit? Um, And and Because the book is really trying to capture that that full complexity of all the different kinds of ways people end up not having children, I felt like child-free really didn't fit. Childless I mean, there's a reason child-free exists. It, it has a negative connotation. It seems to imply a lack. Um, so that didn't really seem particularly appropriate as well. So I fell back on something that I often tell my students in writing, which is to describe people in factual terms rather than using labels. So I, I tried very hard throughout the book to, to explain or to describe people as they lived, a woman without children, a woman who experienced infertility, a woman who wasn't a mother, um, a woman who chose not to have children. So in some ways, this, the title was a placeholder for a term that I didn't have. And then it became the, the term that I, that I preferred in, in putting together the book.
1: Right. I mean, you do talk about this in the book um, in a bit more detail as well. So if readers are interested in kind of following up in that discussion around the terminology, obviously, they should get the book. I think it's a really interesting question and it was thought provoking for me, your discussion of, of this question of terminology. Okay, well, let's get to the heart of the matter then. We're here to talk about your book today, and I think it's important that we give our listeners a sort of overview um, in brief of what the book actually discusses, right? Let's get in there a bit more deeply. So could you tell us a bit about the reasons you discuss as to why women don't have children? And of course, some of those, a lot of those may not be a question of choice, uh, as you've said. What reasons do you focus on and how do they connect with other questions of social justice? So
0: I did the thing you're probably not supposed to do as a historian, which is I, I started with the present and then and then went backwards. Um, but when when surveys today ask women why they're not having children, their answers are fairly consistent. They say things like, I don't have the social support that would be necessary to... To have children, I can't afford it, my job or professional ambitions sort of prevent it, um, I'm worried about the environment, the future of the environment, I'm experiencing infertility, or there are just other things I want to do with my life. Um, the the fun thing about being a historian is often you look to the past and you realize that you know there are people there too they have all of the same motivations and reasons that we do um and so i found that these these primary reasons women give today for not having children are are anything but new in fact they all have they all have longer histories and so that's how i ended up framing the book was was with with these five reasons um uh lacking social support, professional ambitions or or the economics of of survival. Um fear about the environment, infertility and and just simply wanting other things out of life than than parenting. And and so each of the chapters 2 through 5 of the book take one of those reasons as, you know, as as its starting point um and and then tells the history of of you know, women not having children for those reasons, and as you pointed out, the the only one that is really truly about choice, about sort of freely choosing from, from a variety of options, is the final chapter where where I do talk about the child free movement and and people choosing not to ha- choosing lives without children. The other four are much more ambiguous. Um, so, for example, in um, in chapter two, I talk about the lack of community support. Which I think can be captured in discussions about, you know, how expensive daycare is in the United States today and, and how that is a limiting factor on families. Um, if you look back in history, uh, demographers have looked at birth records and, and church records from French colonial Canada, and they've, they've been able to show that the further a woman moved from her own mother – from her family of origin, from her community that could have provided support, the fewer children she was likely to have. So, so these it, th- this mechanism of community support it's it's a it's a factor today, but it is also a factor that has that has a really long history. Um, and so, so then the book moves through each of these reasons. Um, in in chapter three, I talk about the ways in which career ambitions, professional ambitions, and the economic realities of of people's homes. Limited have have for a very long time limited their ability to have children. Um, in the the 19th century in the United States, you see women very clearly having to make the decision between continuing their job as a teacher or or having children, because there were laws against women. Um, a, you know. A, Having children and continuing in in various professions, for many women, they chose to quit their job and have children. But that that wasn't true for everyone. Um, so so the yeah so 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 there is there is the ways in which professional ambitions weigh on reproductive decisions as well. Um, we can talk more in later in the interview about the ways in which environmental anxiety or environmental concerns have have. Shaped reproductive decisions in the past, um, and and then I also address infertility, which I mean, talk about not fitting into the framework of choice. These are generally people who would have had children had they had they been able to, um, and and so there's there's of course a long history of of the ways in which infertility shapes people's families and lives. Um, so so the book moves through these reasons, and each one starts with the present and, and, um, and moves backwards, showing that there's a long history.
1: That's great. Yeah. So as you say, a lot of these reasons that you discuss, they're not new, although of course they are changing um, over time. And women without children aren't a new phenomenon. I mean, in your first chapter, you spend a lot of time discussing the ways that women have tried to avoid or terminate pregnancies in the past, for example. I think that's really helpful. I think that's something that we forget. And I think there's there's an interesting tension here as well so this is a half formed thought but something you do in the book is you you avoid either sort of lamenting the fact that oh you know women aren't having children now but because they should be, but these things are preventing them from doing it. You're critical of the naturalization of like having children as the thing to do. And you do present that there's always been women who haven't done it. Um, Because I find that, you know, a lot of the ostensibly progressive conversations around the reasons why women don't or can't have children, ones which call for greater social support, welfare provision, that kind of thing, they still often sort of naturalize the condition of motherhood and present having children as the thing that women should be doing. And I think your book opens up a space for being critical, both of all these factors which are preventing women from making actually a genuine choice to have or not have children without reifying motherhood in that way. Uh, so if, if that made sense, I appreciate the way you did that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, the the first chapter was not one that I that I intended to write. It wasn't in the original book proposal. Um it, so the the first chapter, as you mentioned, is is a history of not having children, and I go I go way back. I go to you know ancient Rome and ancient Greece and gynecological treatises that record ways you know very ingenious ways that people attempted to avoid pregnancy or or end pregnancies, and and like I said that that wasn't one that I thought I needed to write, but I found myself having the same conversation over and over again with with. People who I think would identify as very progressive, would identify as feminists, would identify as people in defense of reproductive rights, who would say, you know, how could you write a history, a long history of not being a mother? Because wasn't the birth control pill invented in the 1950s? You know, Roe v. Wade, 1972. Um, and 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 that there was this sort of baked-in assumption that it was modern technology and and maybe modern feminist thought that created the ability of women to opt out of, of having children. And I realized I needed to establish that actually we can we can see this going way back that that women are are making really conscious efforts to limit their fertility, to limit the number of children that they're going to have, to opt out entirely from from motherhood. And so that uh, you know that that this is not a new phenomenon in in a really sort of fundamental way, um, and I, I it surprised me that that I needed to establish that because I think um, as you point out, even on the political left, even among you know in feminist circles, there's this sort of assumption that that opting out of having kids is is a new phenomenon, which it which it really isn't.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that presentism, especially given that we do still have people alive today who've had abortions before abortion was legal, right? Before there was access to abortion. And of course, people are going to continue to have or try to have abortions, even now as abortion rights are being sort of rolled back. So I think it's a very timely contribution. The book was in the final stages of writing when, when
0: the Dobbs decision came out in the United States, overturning Roe v. Wade and allowing states to, to dramatically curtail um, the, the right to abortion to, to make it illegal effectively. Um, and, and I do think that there's a lot of – well, that same assumption that I, that I mentioned earlier from From, you know, progressives, from feminists, that that not having children is is this new phenomenon, I think comes into play in the assumptions about what's going to happen, which is that, you know, now all of our agency has been taken away. There's going to be forced pregnancies, forced births. And of course, in some cases, this is this is dramatically limiting women's options. Um, however, nothing nothing in the historical record suggests that abortion being illegal makes people stop trying to, limit the number of births that they have. Um, when, when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land in, in 1972, births did not drop in the United States. So it, it, there, that suggests that you know, there weren't a whole large number of women who prior to it being legal would have aborted pregnancies who then were able to afterwards. What did drop was deaths of pregnant women by sepsis which dropped 90, 90%, which suggested that that women were willing to take very, you know, very real risks to, to, to limit births. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think understanding that this is, that this is a much, that this is not a modern phenomenon, that, that people have long been trying to limit births helps us understand this new reproductive rights landscape that,
1: that we're dealing with in, in the United States as well. That's great. I'm I'm really glad you elaborated on that. I think it's a really important contribution the book makes. I wanted to change tack a little bit to talk about another important contribution I thought the book made. It was that you tackled a really difficult topic in chapter four, so because of the planet. And I thought your discussion here of the environmental questions around having children was really compelling. It's a very thorny topic for some very good reasons, which you do get into. You discuss the ways that population concerns were implicated in eugenics, sexist, racist, classist policies and programs, and how some of these distasteful strands of so-called environmental thinking are still alive today. So this still matters, This these ugly histories, but at the same time, you also want to ask readers to genuinely think critically about our responsibility to the planet and to the beings already on it. So not in a dogmatic way, but you are posing those questions in a way that you don't often see because I I find that these conversations do tend to get short-circuited in a lot of spaces. Talking about the environment and the child question together, it's it, because of these these very difficult histories, it's a hard conversation to have. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how you see uh, or how the people you wrote about saw the intersection between reproductive choices and environmentalism. Give our listeners a sense of the environmental rationales, historical and contemporary, for, for not having children, because this is a reason that women have given for not having children, so it does matter. Yeah, absolutely. This chapter...
0: It felt really, really important to include in the book. Um, a, a recent surveys, a recent survey of of um, young people globally, people under twenty five globally, found that six in ten said that they were concerned about having children because of climate change. Which is like this is a really dramatic statistic, and yet, I, it's not a conversation that. For a whole variety of reasons, is 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 taken particularly seriously in the United States across the political spectrum. I think that this tends to be dismissed. I'm thinking about uh, New York State Representative um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, went on Instagram Live several years ago, and you know, and just. Commented that young people today are thinking about whether it's ethical to have children um, because of climate change, and and she gets pilloried on on conservative media. Fox News called her, uh, you know, said she was advocating for civilizational suicide. But even on the political left, I, I don't think it's taken particularly seriously. Um, and yet, for many young people, this is this is this is a really live, thorny ethical problem that they're living. Um, one of the things I wanted to do with the chapter was to show that once again, this is not a new phenomenon that people have been thinking about the ways in which um, the environment and and their reproductive decisions will will intersect for a very, very long time. And in the chapter, I trace sort of two distinct intellectual lineages. One is, is the idea of your child causing harm to the environment. And I think today we could think of that as as expressed in people who talk about the carbon footprint of babies, that, that, that having a baby is the most carbon intensive thing you can do. It's far worse than flying on an airplane or eating meat or whatever. And the other one is people thinking about the harm that the environment will have on your child, um, and, and so I trace these two these two lineages. The former is the one that gets really, really complicated um, historically. That one, I, I trace it back to Thomas Malthus. His essay on the principle of population in 1798 makes the argument, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar, um, that that human population will increase um, until it hits some sort of, Unsustainable level where there aren't resources to support it, um, and and then something terrible will happen to knock the population back down, like famine, war over resources, disease. Um, Malthus is <laughs> Malthus is is not an unproblematic figure. He is mostly writing. With concern about how many children poor people are having, Um, he also is concerned about Britain not having a revolution like France just did. So, so he wants to keep like the elites in power by making sure we tamp down population of poor people. Um, And his ideas were later used to justify racist and colonialist population control programs. Everything from um, eugenicist movements in the United States that tried to, you know, limit. urban poor populations to on a global scale. Um, for example, Lyndon Johnson's administration in 1965 um, refuses to send food aid to India unless India um, institutes population control programs, which results in a massive sterilization campaign. So these have sort of, <laughs> it, it, it makes sense to me that, that people have backed away from from that sort of thinking um, the other intellectual lineage I I trace in in the book is I think much harder to dismiss and it is more in line with what I hear from young people today which is that you know I'm not so much concerned about the harm my child will do to the environment I am concerned about my child's experience of an environment that has already been harmed um, and this I mean, of course, this has a history. This is this is. Um, anthropologists have shown that primates limit their their fertility in times of environmental distress. It is it's completely logical that a parent to be would be concerned about whether the environment they live in could support another life, um, and 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 so that's where um, that's where I think the real heart of of environmental concerns about reproduction is coming from today. Um, and and I think you can take that all the way back to, um, you know, sort of fundamental instinctual things, but also in times of famine, in times of environmental distress around the world and throughout history, you can see people limit their their reproduction. In part, starving bodies are less fertile, but I also think that that we can't, we, we have to assume that people are making decisions about um, limiting their reproduction.
1: Right. I think it's a really interesting conversation and obviously one we need to have very carefully. As you say, there are these two questions that women might think about or any potential parent might think about. Of course, it is both how will my having children affect the environment and how will life be for any children I bring into the world given human environmental devastation. I definitely recommend this chapter to any reader interested in those questions because it's quite hard to find a discussion that doesn't Okay, maybe it's not that hard. Maybe I haven't looked hard enough, but I find that the tendency is for people to position, because obviously there are these horrible, awful histories of state controlled reproduction. Mm. Any question of thinking about the environment in relation to having children gets thrown out altogether. And I I find that frustrating, given Mm. as you say, that this is a very real concern for a lot of young and indeed not so young people who still might be thinking about having children or not. So, Uh, To me, there's a third question, which is that as life becomes more difficult as a result of climate change and a bunch of other factors, I mean, quality of life in the UK, where I live, has certainly been plummeting in recent years. I think just about everyone, but maybe Steven Pinker would agree that we're not doing well. We're not getting better over time at the moment. I think these environmental questions really sharpen this other aspect of why people may choose or not choose to have children, which is caring for humans and other beings already in the world and how having children making that choice might or might not impact one's ability to do that. And I think that segues well into the other question I wanted to ask, which was, about Ella Baker, who's one of the figures of several inspiring and really interesting figures you discuss in the book and the sort of more expansive, more expansive ideas of mothering and care that her story helps you shed light on. So maybe you could talk a bit about that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Ella Baker was one of the, one of my favorite uh, historical figures that I encountered in the book. So of course, Ella Baker was a prominent Figure in the American Civil Rights Movement. She was she was active in the NAACP. She, you know, traveled across the South in the 1940s when it was incredibly dangerous to do that uh, recruiting members of the NAACP, um, talking in church basements to to people and and sort of advocate, you know, trying to to mobilize Black Americans in the South to um, to advocate for for civil rights. Um, she was later the the national director of, of the, of the NAACP. And she was also not a mother and these two things are not obviously connected, but in her, they really deeply were connected. Um, She was, she was quite clear that, that, not having children of her own allowed her time, space, love, care, energy that she could then expend on, on advocating for the future of her community rather than sort of ensuring the the future of her immediate offspring. This came from um, this understanding of, of the expansive ways that one could care for their community came from her upbringing, which was, she, she grew up in rural North Carolina in, in a town that she described as, um, as family socialism, that the basically she described it as families really helping each other. Her family was relatively well off. And, and she talks about, you know, sharing her family's farm equipment, sharing her, her family's vegetable garden, um, that she would take care of the kids down the street whose, whose mother had passed away. And, and in fact, as an adult, she she ends up serving as a mother figure to her niece who, um, who ends up moving to New York City to live with Ella Baker and her husband. And, and she oh, Ella Baker is 42 when, when she gets the call, can you take your seven-year-old niece? And And in her recollection, she doesn't even blink. She's like, "Of course, that's that's what that is what is needed of me." Um, And so, I think in the figure of Ella Baker, you can see a, a really radical expansion of what the the word mother might mean, what it might mean to care for a community. She's thinking everything from providing you know real material care to the children, the biological children of other people, to caring for your neighbors down the street to advocating for the future of black Americans. For her, those are all linked acts of care. Um, And, and, and like I said, she was, she was aware that she would not have been able to do any of those kinds of care for her community had she had, you know, four children of her own that required her love and energy and attention. So for me encountering Ella Baker and, and, Understanding the ways in which her social justice work and civil rights work and and her non motherhood were were profoundly linked helped me think more broadly about what motherhood could mean, and conversely, it helped me understand how how narrow um, our conception of of what a mother is or what it is to mother has become
1: over the last you know century and a half. Yeah, the way you discuss this, it's clear that choosing—or again, choosing—is not always the right frame, frame. But not being a mother can be just as much an act of care as being a mother. And I think the women you choose to illustrate that are really compelling. And I think—and and, and I—yeah, and I didn't know about most of them. So I wonder if you could do a little run through of the impressive and diverse set of historical figures you talk about in this book who did not have children and tell us a bit more about the range of movements or causes or organizations that they were part of
0: yeah one of the really wonderfully fun parts about writing this book is is that women without children are not some sort of coherent niche group within society Um, they, in, in the period that I'm talking about in this book, say the last 200 years of American history, women without children comprise something between one in five and one in three American women. So this cuts across race, it cuts across class, it cuts across religion, profession, um, Interest group, so I'm. It's just talking about a really, really broad range of human experience and and lives, and and so that made the research really fascinating because I'm talking about everyone from an 11th century nun named Christina who you know goes through all of these trials to avoid to avoid marriage to. Um, Lesbian separatist groups in the American 1970s, who are you know setting up uh, communities that are that are only made out of women, to um, Helen Gurley Brown, who was the the editor in chief of Cosmopolitan magazine from the 1960s to the 1990s, who had a very sort of like. A corporate girl boss reason for not having kids, which was, you know, if, if you want to be, if you want to be professional, like a man, you got to act like a man. Um, and, and kids will prevent you from doing that to, to people like Ella Baker, um, and Carrie Steele Logan, who, um, founded the first orphanage for, for black children in the American South after the civil war, um, as a way of, of caring for her community, um, to to Simone de Beauvoir, uh, sort of leaders of of their fields, so it was just a really really broad expanse of of human experience, and it was something that that shouldn't have surprised me. But the way I had initially conceived of the book was rather than framing it around reasons why people didn't have kids, I had it framed around groups of women without children. So I had, you know, nuns and I had a chapter on, you know, like leaders of their industries. And I I quickly came to realize that that was unworkable because because separating women without children into five buckets just was was completely inadequate to capture the the full range of of lives and and interests and um and experiences that they had so so yeah in in the book you will meet you will meet a a whole range of of women's
1: experiences right yeah speaking of range you mentioned, Earlier, the 1970s emergence of the term child free. And though that's not the main focus of your book for reasons you've already discussed, I'm guessing our listeners might have expected us to talk a little more about that. So let's hop over. Briefly to that other end of the spectrum and talk about a group you discuss in your final chapter, the National Organization for Non-Parents or NON, who I actually hadn't heard of before reading this book. So it was sort of a joy and also a little cringy to discover them as they're the group that maybe have the most in common with the types of child food people people love to hate today. Fairly or unfairly, maybe sometimes fairly, as you get into. Um, But I would love if you could talk a little bit about NON and some of their more dramatic stunts, I suppose. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the, the National
0: Organization for NON Parents, or NON for short, was founded in the early 1970s by a woman named Ellen Peck. In 1972, Peck, published a book that was very briefly a national bestseller called The Baby Trap. The Baby Trap, the title sort of gives you a sense of the vibe. Um, it, the Baby Trap is one part a critique of pronatalism, the 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 idea that um, the, the state or society is sort of expecting, incentivizing, or even forcing people to have children. So it's one part a critique of pronatalism, and it's one part a celebration of a life without children. Um, Peck is a really interesting figure by all, by all accounts. She was very beautiful. She was very glamorous. She was very, um, very wealthy. She and her husband owned three houses, including one on a private Island in the Caribbean. They traveled, they ate fabulous food. They had this fantastic life. And in, in the baby trap and in a lot of her advocacy, Peck frames these as the the effects and benefits of a child-free life. Not really allowing that those might be the effects and benefits of just being really rich, um, but for her, she she was countering the expectation that that women should should become mothers by by showing all of the benefits that she understood to come from not being mothers. Um, This didn't win her a lot of fans Um, in defenders of the traditional family, conservatives, like you were saying, it confirms every bad stereotype they have ever encountered of people without kids, that they're selfish, they wildly spend money, they're hedonists, whatever. But on, um, it, it also didn't win Peck many friends among feminists. The, the women's movement at that point was, was much more focused on improving the conditions under which women became mothers and mothered than it was on validating not having children as a lifestyle choice. And um, as one prominent feminist writer put it, Peck basically saw motherhood as something that you only did if you were too dumb to avoid it. And so so this this sort of created a lot of tension between her and and more um, mainstream factions of the feminist movement. However, for a lot of people who did not have children, the existence of non was transformative. I found one quote from a woman who was in her 60s when she joined non, um, and she said that joining non fi- finding this organization allowed her and her husband to go from being a childless couple which they had been for their for decades and turn them into a child-free family which is not just semantics i mean that's that's a real like transformative experience it's and it also makes a it expands the definition of a family it it makes a claim that that a couple without children could be a viable family unit um and 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 so the non disbanded in the early 1980s. Reagan, it was the Reagan era. It's sort of a tough time to be expanding the definition of what family means. Um, but I do think the legacy of non lives on in a lot of ways. Peck and the organization popularized the term child free, um, and and also. Um, there remain offshoots of of this group. There are child-free cruises now and and sort of social organizations that are modeled on non for people without children. Um, But as you said, there's also a cringy part of this that uh, if you look at non's membership roles, they tended to be heterosexual, white, urban, wealthy. Um, They were not thinking in really radical ways about how to restructure society. They were just trying to say, you know, People without children can also be respectable middle-class families. So, so there's a real um, – there's, there's sort of a – I guess a complicated legacy that, that the organization has left us with. But in terms of pushing the conversation forward, introducing new language, starting to, to recognize not having kids as a, as a valid lifestyle choice, I think, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of the effects of that play out today.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously a really important group. And I also, I mean, shout out to them for holding their non-parents day Mm -hmm. ceremony in 1974. I loved the discussion of that. It features Isaac Asimov placing laurel wreaths on the heads of a young man and woman, crowning them non-parents of the year, among other things. I was like, I was not expecting that detail. And...
0: (laughs) And they, they had a, um, so for the first non-parents day in 1974, they, they had this ceremony, like you were saying in Central Park, and they also had, um, spandex clad dancers doing a non-fertility dance, um, which I mean, just completely bizarre, but the, the funny thing is, so non uh, designated August first as Non-Parents Day, and they do all of these these um, spandex-clad stunts and and re- crowning Non-Parents of the Year. Um, if on, on Instagram, August 1st is, is an Instagram holiday of, of Non-Parents Day. And I think a lot of the, the young people posting about that probably don't know the connection to the, to the non-fertility ritual that happened in, in 1974 in Central Park. Um, but the, the core idea of, you know, we have a day that celebrates mothers, we have a day that celebrates fathers, and here is a day that celebrates people without children, that has remained a really powerful, powerful concept.
1: Right, yeah, and if anything, I mean, we maybe should be looking to bring back the uh, the spandex and the non-fertility. I mean, yeah, I, maybe someone's already doing that, but uh, i'm I'm for it. okay, so, as we sort of move towards the end of the interview, it would be really great to hear you talk about any women you would have liked to include. Because it's not like there's any shortage of inspiring <laughs> women in history without children. So are there any women you particularly would have liked to add that you weren't able to? One of the the pieces of the
0: book that got left on the cutting room floor, I, I had probably... I mean, I'm sure it was overkill, probably a 5,000-word section on Rachel Carson, who uh, was sort of a pioneer of the American environmentalist movement. She's the author of Silent Spring, which which shed a light on um, the harms of DDT and and ultimately resulted in it getting banned. She is mentioned in the book very briefly now in, I think, one paragraph. But Rachel Carson did not have children. And much was made of this in the public around her. There was just a lot of like journalists being like, "This is so confusing. This woman seems to care about the future of the environment, but she has no children who will live in it in the future. So why why would she care?" And even within the within the U.S. government, there's there's a lot of confusion about this. Like you know, this this woman without children is confused is is concerned about. The environment after she's gone, she must be a communist. <laughs> um, so, but which which I found like very funny and very revealing that the because it it suggests how deeply ingrained the idea is that the only way we we sort of the only way we could possibly care about the future is if our own DNA is going to continue living in it, which is a very strange and limiting concept of of how we can care about other human beings. One of the reasons I cut Carson was because her non-motherhood was very important to people around her. It did not seem particularly important to her. In fact, she ends up adopting a nephew and serving in all material and emotional ways as the mother to a very young child until, until her death. So I, I found her to be a sort of more complicated person to, to include in the book. and. Um, and it almost she belongs in a different book, which is about stigma or, or the ways in which society interprets women without children rather than how they live their own lives. Because I think at, at least her final years, she lived them very much as, as a mother. Um, so, so she was, she was someone who, who largely got, um, you know, cut from the book because, um. Because I felt like I was I was imposing an identity onto her that wasn't one that she necessarily would have um, have identified with. In more fun, I tried very hard to figure out how Julia Child could fit into the book, and I ended up not not including her. Um, but but I think that there is a very fun piece to be written about about Julia Child. There's some evidence that um, that she was un- unable to have children and that that was a source of great pain for her earlier in her life, and that later on, you know, she she ends up living life to the fullest and and um, and sort of capitalizing on the opportunities that that not having children could allow. I'd love to write that piece, but I, I couldn't fit her into the book.
1: Right. I'm sure there are plenty more, but that's absolutely fascinating about Carson. And I hope, well, I hope that that other piece, that's about Mm -hmm. stigma, I hope that gets written at some point by you and we get to read it (laughs) (laughs) in some venue. I'm going to make a note of that right now. Yeah. So, okay. So obviously you're working on that right now, but other (laughs) than that, uh, other than that, what else, uh, what I'd like to close with is just to ask you, what else you're working on at the moment?
0: So I... Aside from from the Julia Child piece and and the stigma piece, um, yes, <laughs> I that that first chapter that I talked about about uh, conscious efforts to to limit fertility. Um, got me interested in the history of, of women's healers and, and midwives and, and sort of folk knowledge and, and the ways in which women's reproductive lives was very much the domain of women until the middle of the 19th century when, when sort of medicine becomes a professionalized and and therefore increasingly male dominated thing. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of formulating a book about about the history of midwifery, which um, feels quite connected to what is happening in the United States today where um, you know, reproductive rights are under threat and also um, maternal outcomes are not good and and there's sort of increasing efforts on the part of women across the political spectrum to reclaim, Birth and reproductive rights, or reproductive life, as as a woman centered practice, I think there's all kinds of interesting historical parallels there. So so that that's something that I'm thinking through. It's it's, I mean, half baked would be would be an overstatement at
1: this point. But but that's where that's where my thinking is going. Right, great. Well, I look forward to reading reading about that too. Uh, yeah, it's super interesting stuff, and clearly connects well with this book too. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And obviously it's been a pleasure to read this book. I had actually read the book before I even asked you to talk about it. I was so excited to see it and it did not disappoint. So highly recommended. God, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy, for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in today. Once again... My name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Dr. Peggy O'Donnell-Heffington about her new book, Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother, published by Seal Press in April 2023. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the publisher, or from any ethical retailer. Thanks all for listening, and thanks again, Peggy, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy.